I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation. And we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City. And today I actually have a new guest joining me, Tristan Cleveland. He is the project lead for Happy City Strong Towns contributor and PhD candidate with Healthy Populations Institute. And he happens to be the author of the article we're covering today, which is called The Responsibility of Building to the Street, published in Planetison. So Tristan, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. Uh, I've been listening to you for so long. It's fun to join you. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Hopefully it's not the last time. It's great having guests on. And I know Chuck's been traveling a lot, so I welcome the opportunity. Is there anything that I missed in your introduction? I mean, it'd be great to kind of for listeners to hear about the what you're interested in and the work that you're doing at Happy City and with your, you know, PhD research before we get into this article. Yeah. So um, my PhD is studying how to redesign suburban communities to become walkable, livable places. So, you know, a lot of suburbs, we're talking environments completely dominated by blank walls, by parking lots, by large walls. And you can put in a plan saying, uh, yeah, we want mixed use buildings here, but no one will build them because if you direct an entrance of a new building towards a sidewalk and cover up parking lots in a place where no one walks and everybody drives, that building's going to fail. So there's no incentive for anyone to build walkable buildings in a completely car-oriented context. And my research is on how to get over that basic you know, chicken and egg problem. How do you get the street life that can support those walkable buildings and get those walkable buildings that can support street life? How do you overcome that barrier? Well, I think the article that you wrote is such a great demonstration of that kind of thinking. So this article, it's entitled The Responsibility of Building to the Street, and it's fundamentally asking about this responsibility, really whose responsibility is it to make sure that buildings interact with the public realm and respect and engage the public realm. So what you're talking about and the example that you use is essentially it's reminiscent of urban renewal in the United States. And I'm, I was wondering, does Canada call it urban renewal or do you have a different word for it? Yeah, we had the same problem, the same scourge. Same problem. <laughs> I thought it was perfect up there. It's not. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've blown your cover. So the example that you use is called Scotia Square. Is that right? In Halifax, Canada. it's basically an example and we've seen it all over the U S where, you know, you have a bunch of modest small buildings and a traditional development pattern, and they are cleared away uh, to make way for this large scale office mall complex. And listeners can picture blank walls, a lot of concrete parking structures and large unwalkable blocks that are very uninviting to anybody who's walking on the street. And, because of this massive redevelopment of the area, it essentially cut off, it's the north end of, of the downtown, correct? It cut that area off, and which caused decades of decline, and, and the area has had a hard time bouncing back. 
And that kind of gets to this underlying point of the article that the visual design of buildings and the built environment shapes where people will go and not go. And thus designers have a responsibility of building in a way that engages the street. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that example um, really underlines an important point, which is that so often um, architectural thinkers and, and lots of other people think about visual design as this kind of frivolous added thing, something to do for wealthy people, uh, something to, that you care about if you have too much time on your hands, you know? But in fact, when you look at that building, for example, it cut off the northern part of the downtown, not because it actually put in like a, a physical fortification, not because it actually prevented anyone from from walking north, but because it's such a, a dour environment that people did not want to walk there, right? So the visual design of those streets and those buildings were so poor that they changed the behavior of tens of thousands of people and undermined the economic viability of fully half of a downtown, impacting the life course and the, the, the economic prospects of tens of thousands of residents in that city for decades to come, like you mentioned. So this is not frivolous. This is hugely impactful on people's day-to-day lives, whether they can put bread on the table, whether they can walk down the street and whether there's actually a corner store there for them or not, whether there's jobs available on their street. Um, you know, this is the stuff that matters in life. Yeah. Well, I thought in the article, you raised a really interesting question about whether there is a practical function to building cities in a way that create human-friendly streets. And I think absolutely... Uh, Internally, my colleague Robert Whitman always talks about streets and the environments of streets as being value beacons and that they actually, you know, exude value. They connect places of value. And when you have a place where people don't want to walk, that is an, that's an incredible psychological barrier that inhibits the function of that place well, and its ability to extend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? Because I mean, it's, it's like when you look at areas through cities where interstates go through, right? And that is the opposite of a value beacon. It, it's, it's a value sucker. And so what kind of development or not development, <laughs> lack of development, you get around that kind of area, you get parking lots, gas stations, uh, it just vacant lots, basically. And it's because that public realm is a value sucker. It's it's creating everything. It's making it an unlivable, unusable environment. That's right. An unlivable, unusable environment for humans, right? Because at the end of the day, the thing that decides whether a street is valuable or not is whether humans want to spend time there, whether they want to do business there, whether they want to eat lunch there, whether you know, or whether they avoid the place and want nothing to do with it, whether they want to buy a home there. All of these things depend ultimately on whether you create a public realm streets where people are willing to spend time. So I say in the article that the responsibility of the building to the street is very simply to create streets where people want to be. And this is really central to the Strong Town message because Strong Towns is all about creating streets that build wealth. And if you want to build wealth, uh, the first most fundamental thing is to attract human beings, to create an environment where they want to do business, where they're comfortable doing business, where they're comfortable doing their daily tasks. And it's not, not a chore, not something they have to trudge through. And it's just vitally important um, that 
buildings are designed in a way that create those streets for, where people want to be. Because if they don't, if they line it with blank walls, it's really hard to save the street. You can put up some murals, you can put up some garden boxes, but at the end of the day, if you're surrounded by dour blank walls or, or parking lots, it's really hard to save it. Yeah. I think many of us can picture a place like that and a place like you were describing Scotia Square in your article. In Kansas City, I was thinking exactly of Crown Center, which is a huge, you know, multi-block mall office complex that has really struggled over the past several decades. And I think part of that is its design, exactly. It's really hard to support. It's not quite as bad as Scotia Square, but it's it's really not great as an environment for people walking. I do want to get to this discussion that you bring up about whether design is frivolous in a matter of taste versus competence. So you can see that while design is not necessarily this objective, measurable thing, there is a level of competence that is related to designing buildings that design the street. What is your measurement or measurements of competent design in that regard? In trying to make this argument that the basic function of buildings is to create human-friendly streets, attractive streets. I had to tackle this idea that, well, it's just a matter of taste. It's just, you know, beauty is to the eye of the beholder, which is the basic justification for building ugly buildings for the last century. So we got to find a way out of this logic, right? This trap. It's very important to contrast two questions. One is, do you think this building is cool when I show you a photo of a building? And another question is, when I measure your behavior, do you spend time in this in front of this building or not? How do you actually act in reality? I'm not asking for your opinion. I'm asking objectively, what do you do when you're near this building? So I use the example of the Guggenheim in Bilbo, Spain, where it's surrounded by blank walls. It looks cool from a distance, but nearby, it's just very blank, empty public spaces. And uh, objectively, the it fails to create a vibrant place. Um, it's in a very, very vibrant city where there's lots of exciting public spaces with tons of people nearby. But the public spaces around that building with all of its blank walls and empty plazas send people away. People get through it into the building as quick as they can and then back out again. Um, and so it objectively fails. Uh, we, we can verifiably test whether this creates human-friendly places or not. So both these things can be true. You can both look at a photo of that building or look at it from the distance and say, I like that building. And also the same person would not want to spend time near that building whatsoever. They're really two different questions. I, uh, I compared in the article to the difference between uh, designing a model plane to be pretty and designing a plane that can actually fly. So, you know, we can be as academic and abstract as we want about making things look cool or pretty for magazines and that kind of thing. It doesn't really matter. There's no responsibility there. Where the responsibility is, is in the equivalent of making an airplane that can fly. And that is designing buildings that in fact measurably create streets where people will spend time. Yeah. It makes me think of a sculpture. You know, sculptures can be beautiful and interesting and amazing, but if it were blown up to be a building scale, do you want to live in a city <laughs> made of sculptures? <laughs> Basically what postmodernism has been doing, right? And so uh, 
architecture for the last almost a century now has really thought about itself as kind of a subset of sculpture. <laughs> you know, they're, they're designing buildings to represent concepts and, and high ideas. Mumford pointed this out 70 years ago that uh, they're enjoying the, the privileges of a sculpture without taking on the responsibility of professionals who uh, design public streets. And uh, I wish people had listened to him back then. This article, if I can say modestly, I would like this idea to completely redefine the architectural profession, the entire profession, right? I believe strongly that when you go to university for um, any kind of outdoor design, architecture in particular, but landscape architecture, urban design planning, that um, a central responsibility is learning the, the knowledge that we have, we, we do have, we've done lots of studies on this, on um, how you can, you know, what kind of practical interventions you can do to make sure that the exterior of that building consistently, without exception, um, creates those great streets. Um, the reason why it needs to be a responsibility is because this has to be uh, consistent. It has to be every single building has to do this correctly. I mentioned earlier that my research is on redesigning suburban communities. One of the problems there is, is that you might get one building that looks really nice. And, and if you had a dozen of those buildings on the street, then you would start to get this great place where people want to walk. But uh, for every one building that's well-designed, you get you know a half dozen that suck, right? Or so many university campuses are the same, or so many downtowns, uh, even in the best downtowns in North America, it seems like every other building is, is detracting from the street instead of contributing to it. And um, we can't we can't make progress on creating these streets where people do in fact want to spend time if we have such an inconsistent rate of, of um, supporting these streets. I mean, imagine, to, to go back to airplanes, imagine if, you know, we were only designing airplanes that could successfully fly, you know, half the time or whatever the proportion is, <laughs> you know, that's the, the cavalier attitude that we're approaching building design with. And it's, it's crazy. It's so important for our economic growth, for our well-being, for our health, for social equity to get people outside and, you know, make it possible for them to take part in their community, to have such a cavalier attitude to whether buildings are doing this basic job of creating human-friendly places is, is crazy. It's totally crazy. So we have to start rigorously training people on how to do this properly. Yeah, I very much agree with that. And what I appreciated about your article is that it begun to get to this, how the public realm and buildings interact with one another and talking about responsibility of really both. You bring up Oklahoma and, you know, kind of the, the point of that story is that a good looking city is this important modern prerequisite to attracting jobs. Yeah, um, I could retell that story really quick. I, yeah, please do, because yeah, yeah. I, I think it'd be good to kind of talk about that. Yeah. So um, this um, mayor, Ron Norick, in, in the late 80s was elected in Oklahoma City, and he was a no-nonsense kind of guy who uh, saw his job as bringing jobs to the city, uh, you know, not silly stuff like making things look pretty, right? So they heard that United Airlines needed a new facility to um, maintain airplanes, so they offered them everything to come to Oklahoma City and bring jobs. They um, Tons of tax rebates. They even offered to build them the factory and got did a referendum in the city 
and got approval to increase sales tax throughout the city to build that factory for that company. And amazingly, United said no. They, they built it in another city. When the mayor asked them why, they were embarrassed to tell him at first. And finally, um, they admitted that they had sent two mid-level employees to check out the city. And what they reported back was a single sentence. We couldn't imagine living there. And that killed the deal. It didn't matter how much financial incentives, how many tax breaks, whatever they were offering. You know, it wasn't worth it to them to try to force employees to live in a city where they don't want to work, which makes sense. I mean, you have to, how much more would you have to pay talented employees to live in a place where they don't want to live? So when you have a high quality city, it's basically like a benefit, a, a, a free benefit that companies that are located there can, that can offer their employees. And I mean, it's only become more true since then that um, the cities that tend to succeed are the cities that attract people because knowledge workers have um, better negotiating power and they increasingly want to live in cities with a high quality of life. Um, so it's really on cities to create um, an environment that people actually want to live in. But I mean, you know, this, this should be obvious, right? Like, how, what is a city? A city is a collection of human beings. How the heck is it supposed to succeed if it sucks for humans to live there? You know, if you want to succeed, if, you, if success depends on attracting human beings, talented human beings, then yeah, you better make your city a great place to live. And the city is composed of streets. Um, so it's going to be really hard to do if your streets suck. And it's really hard to create great streets if your buildings suck. So uh, the responsibility of the building of the street is this bedrock need that um, every designer needs to meet for cities to succeed. Well, and part of what I think is interesting about the Oklahoma story is that this actually led to a transformation of investment in their public spaces, which usually fall under the purview of engineers, which which is probably exactly the wrong person to be uh, designing streetscapes. You know, they're really good at engineer in, engineering, but maybe not so good at building places that people want to be. I would say they're really good at designing highways. Yeah. Yeah. They're really good at designing highways. They're probably good with technical specifications and materials, things of that nature, but public spaces and the actual design of a public realm where people want to interact, not just for driving is exactly the wrong job, I think, for an engineer. It, and it is the other half of this equation, right? I mean, I've seen Kansas City has a ton of examples of our old downtown with these gorgeous buildings and the street has been decimated into like a super strode. Uh, and it's totally a hostile place for people to be, despite the buildings being what you'd like them to be. So there's two parts of this equation where, you know, architects are fundamentally controlling one part of that. And then engineers have such a strong influence on the other half of that equation. And there's a really important need to have a responsibility to both to make this equation work. That's right. That's right. So where I think we need to go is we have uh, not just architects, but architects, planners, and engineers 
have a subset of them who are specialized for walkable communities. And I mean walkable in the absolute broadest sense for basically anything that's not a highway or a road or, you know, high speed, long distance arterial, anything that is a uh, community where people are trying to encourage any form of travel other than just the car, but places where we're trying to build wealth on those streets. So in any, anywhere that's, that's, designated as walkable, this is not a highway, there should be a different set of engineers, architects, and planners who um, work on, on, on buildings and streets and public spaces in those places because it's such a, a fundamentally different set of skills. And much of what's gone wrong in our communities in the last century has been because of people applying things that actually do make sense in car-dependent environments to these walkable communities. So um, designing streets uh, based on how quickly you can move traffic and volumes, et cetera, makes sense for a highway, not for a walkable street. Um, architects designing buildings like their sculptures in space disconnected from buildings around them, that's fine for a car-dependent environment. Planners putting in minimum parking requirements, totally fine in a car-dependent place. Again, you know, have as much parking as you want. It, it, it doesn't really matter out there. Um, there's no other way to get around really in a car dependent area. I do think that there actually needs to be a different set of professionals, a different training regime and different set of standards and, um, a different core set of responsibilities that define, um, their skill set and their responsibility to the public. That's obviously a lot to ask for. And this idea of the responsibility of the building to the street is just one, one piece of that. I want to make this happen. I'm trying to figure out the, the steps. This summer coming up, um, I'm doing a workshop with the Canadian Institute of Planners where we're going to discuss this idea of creating a national designation for walkable areas. So it's, it's just an idea at this point. But if you had that, then you could start to build this, um, this apparatus of specific responsibilities and specific professionals who specialize in those areas across the country. It ties back to this idea Jeff Speck has in his update to his book. He, um, he has this, this pledge for planners to define their, their commitment to stop doing these you know, terrible ideas with planning that have uh, ruined so many communities. Well, if you had um, walkable communities across the country designated as, you know, this is where walkable planners uh, standards apply then something like that pledge could apply there like that is uh there's just a different set of rules that apply in these places well that's really interesting i love that idea of having a clear distinction with professionals and and not even just for architects but engineers and maybe even developers people who are engaged in building the not just the the public realm, but also buildings. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I'd love to see something that is very unified. I think the Congress for the New Urbanism is the closest I've seen to a multidisciplinary effort um, that kind of looks like that, but I've never seen any official designation. Yeah, yeah. It's actually it relates back to uh, Chuck Marone's distinction between streets and roads, right? I mean, roads are kind of for these car dependent environments outside communities and streets are for these environments inside communities. So it's kind of 
taking that basic distinction and, and up to the whole level of the community and saying, hey, this requires a different set of skills. Yeah. Well, I hope that we get to that. I hope maybe you can come back on and follow up with us on either this podcast or maybe the Strong Towns podcast to talk about that workshop and where that effort is going. Yeah, I would love that. Wonderful article. I'm glad we were able to get connected. We'll leave it there. But before we finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we've been reading, watching, listening to, anything that's been occupying our time these days. I'm just going to throw it right to you and ask you, what have you been up to? Well, I just uh, pulled up my phone to check the the name of this book I've been listening to. Um, it's called Debt, the, the First 5,000 Years. It's by David Graeber. And it, yeah, it's a fascinating book because it talks about how before the existence of modern markets, how human societies functioned, you know. He throws up this idea that before there was money, uh, everyone um, got by with barter, that the alternative to money was barter. And um, he talks about how actually people only ever bartered with strangers. And the way that people actually function inside communities or inside the the first big cities, like Bronze Age cities, like uh, Egypt and early Greece, was uh, through, you know, I mean, he talks a lot about debt, like interpersonal debt to each other, the um, responsibilities to each other, and how that all worked. Um, I think it's this kind of thing is valuable for us urban planners to understand um, uh, because, in my mind, why it's nifty and why it matters is because before the existence of money, cities had to function with these very, very strict hierarchical systems of organization. It was basically, it was kind of like a kind of communism, but like all of society was one big company that organized stuff top down. Money has made it possible for people to, uh, you know, complete strangers to serve each other's needs. Um, So I find it really valuable to understand, if you want to understand how society works right now, you actually have to go back and look at what existed when none of this existed. And you can learn a lot about how crazy it is that we live in cities with tens of millions of people with no, uh, a lot of it happens with no top-down organization at all. Yeah, that's really interesting. That sounds like a book that's worth, definitely worth reading. I should say that that's kind of my take on it. He's you know, ends up in the end of the book being totally anti-capitalist and, and it kind of goes off the rails for me. <laughs> but the, the anthropology, the ancient history stuff is, is wonderful. Yeah. No, the, the ancient history is really interesting. And yeah, that's, that's funny. I listen to a lot of books that are nonfiction. And right now I've decided to switch it up and I'm listening to a historical fiction novel called Gentlemen in Moscow by Amor Tolls. And it takes place just after the Bolshevik Revolution. And it's about this Russian aristocrat who's basically sentenced to house arrest in a hotel in Moscow for the rest of his life. And the story, and I haven't gotten through it, so if you've read it, don't give me any spoilers, but it's basically about his life (laughs) being imprisoned. Yeah, right. (laughs) It's about being imprisoned in this hotel and his experience over many decades and mastering those circumstances as society changes around him and the interactions with the people that he has over time. So it's 
I find it really interesting. It's I'm at the point right now where I haven't gotten far enough, I think, to really understand the full scope of the book and I guess the the message that it's sending. So nobody send me any messages. Apparently, it's a really popular and good book. So I can want to come to my own conclusions first. But so far, it's been really intriguing. I don't know a lot about Russia and Russian history. So it's just been interesting to read it from this or learn about it from this kind of fiction perspective. Yeah, it's such a fascinating culture and civilization. Yeah, historical fiction in general is is an under underappreciated genre, right? It's often you learn more than trying to read a history book, which um, is expresses things in really abstract terms. One of my favorite books is is Shogun, which transports you into Japan and you just learn so much about Japanese culture and how they actually lived and the you know the, how much honor. It was just such a huge thing in, in their society 400 years ago. And I could not get that from the history book. Yeah, definitely not. And I would imagine that writers of historical fiction, and this may not always be true, but I would imagine that they try to be as true to the time as possible. Well, I think it's important to know, right? Because some yeah. absolutely are. And I, I'm sure there's a ton of trash out there, but all the all this stuff that's good enough to have been recommended to me has, has always been really wonderful. Exactly. Yeah, this was recommended to me and it's been really good so far and it's just interesting. The only thing I've really known about Russia besides current events is, is a you know just looking at pictures of Moscow because it has really beautiful... <laughs> architecture. And so I, it, that's been kind of a fascination of mine. I'm not sure if I'll ever go to Moscow now that, you know, things are not going great over there, but you know, it's, it looks like a beautiful city and it's fun to kind of learn about the history of different countries through this medium. So I'm open to recommendations for historical fiction. That may be what I'm getting into these days. <laughs> My son speaks Russian and I hope to be able to go to the land of his ancestors um, in a free democratic Russia in the near future. Yeah, <laughs> I hope that for your son. Thank you. Truly, we'll end it there. Thanks Thank again you. for joining me today. For and thanks everybody for listening to another episode of Upsound. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Tristan. Thank you. Yeah.